0: Father, we, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for his body broken and his blood poured out. And Lord, we just pray that in this time, as we open up your word and as we hear from you, that your spirit would just open our hearts and our ears and our eyes, Lord, that you would become big in this moment, Lord, and just make your truth known and Father, we just pray that you would do that work in all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So in 1787, there was a French painter. His name was Jacques-Louis David. And he finished his painting, The Death of Socrates. And it really is, it's, it's an oil painting. It's a, an amazing work of art. Socrates, he's, he's sitting on his, on his bed. He's, he's reaching back with his right hand and his left hand, his elbows pointed, and his fingers pointing at the sky, or at the ceiling, rather. And, and his friends are, are gathered at the head of the bed. And Socrates is the only one in the room without a look of fear or anguish on his face. And his friends all had good reason for that look of fear and anguish, because the, the cup that Socrates was reaching for was, was a cup of hemlock. It's a poisonous herb. You see, Socrates had been sentenced to death for his teachings, and and rather than argue for a lesser sentence or arguing against the sentence, he accepted his fate without any fear or anguish. And one university philosopher says this about the painting and the account of Socrates, Socrates' death. Quote, While his friends are weeping, and dejected socrates sits upright accepting the chalice without hesitation showing no sign of distress except perhaps a hint of irritation at the reaction of those around him End quote. "socrates is literally sitting on his deathbed with no fear and in fact he's he's lighthearted and he's joking" And this is the exact opposite of what we see in our passage today. On the the night of the betrayal and arrest of Christ, something happens in the Garden of Gethsemane that shocks the Son of God, and it causes him to flinch. Like Socrates, Christ will have a cup placed before him. But unlike Socrates... Jesus' reaction, it's not stoic or jovial. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus enters the most extreme trial of his ministry, and he responds in the most remarkable way. And in Mark 14, 27 to 42, we get to see five actions of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see five actions of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Mark 14, verse 27. Mark 14, 27, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 27 through 42. And as you turn, I'll give a little background of of where we are in the, the gospel narrative. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Judas has already left. He's gone out to alert the religious leaders. Jesus and the other 11 disciples have just finished the Passover meal and they're ready to leave the upper room. In verse 26 of Mark 14, it tells us that they sang a hymn and then they departed for the Mount of Olives. They would have left the city through an eastern gate near the temple they would have walked about a half a mile down across the Kidron Valley and the Kidron Brook up to the slope of the Mount of Olives. And as they're going, Jesus begins to face the greatest and most difficult trial of his ministry. And it's here on the way up the hill that we see the first action of Jesus as he faces this greatest trial, which is this. Jesus warns his disciples that they will desert and deny him. The first action of Jesus is that he warns his disciples that they will desert and deny him. Let's look at verse 27 together. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Now before they arrive at the the garden, Jesus with Perfect knowledge tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen. He tells them that they will all fall away. And this word fall away, it comes from the the Greek word skandalizo, which is where we get our English word, scandalize or scandal, that's right. But how can Jesus speak so confidently that these men will be scandalized? You see it in verse 27 because it is written. The warning of Jesus is grounded in scripture, and specifically in Zechariah 13, verse seven. In Zechariah, God is speaking and he says this, "'Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate,' declares the Lord of hosts. "'Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered.'" You see what Jesus is doing. He's, he's showing his disciples and us that everything that's going to happen is under the sovereign control of God. God is the one who strikes with the sword and Jesus interprets himself as the shepherd and his disciples as the sheep. Everything that will happen has already been predicted and Jesus desires for his disciples to, to be ready. But this warning by Jesus isn't all negative. The, the Zechariah passage is, is actually a passage of promise. The, the scattering of the sheep will result in a remnant that is purified. In verse 9 of Zechariah 13, it says that the Lord will bring this remnant through the fire and refine them. And then the Lord says this in Zechariah 13, verse 9, They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. And this is exactly where Jesus goes with his next statement. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. See, Jesus, he... He contrasts the striking with the joy of his resurrection. Already, before the sorrow sets in, Jesus provides hope with the promise of his resurrection. That God who will strike the shepherd is the same God who will raise him from the dead. All is not lost, there's hope. And after Jesus has been raised, he will resume his shepherding role and go before his disciples into Galilee. I mean, isn't this amazing? Jesus knows what's going to happen and he wants to give his disciples something that they can hold on to, something, a promise that they can cling to in the coming hours, namely that he will go before them as a shepherd. And and this is no different for you, right? Those who have Christ as their shepherd have a similar promise today. Christ has been exalted and He's gone before us to lead us all through life to the right hand of the Father. And yet, how often do we fail to take these promises to heart? And it was no different for the disciples that night. Look at verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Peter and the group don't even hear the promise about Jesus' resurrection and shepherding. They're so offended at the accusation of desertion that they miss the promise of restoration. Now, this warning from Jesus is towards the whole group, but Peter breaks in with a a pretty arrogant response. He doesn't deny the prediction of the Lord, but he does take exception with one aspect of it. Peter is confident about his ability to remain faithful. Peter never denies that the others will fall away. And in fact, it it sounds like he almost expects it because he makes no claim for their commitment, only his own. Peter basically tells Jesus, you know what, all of these guys might fall away. And in fact, I half expect it, but me, I'll never fall away. Now Peter demonstrates a genuine love for Christ, but he relies on his own strength. And he's sure that where others fall, he will stand. So he asserts his unflinching allegiance to the Lord at the cost at the expense of the other 10 and so jesus takes this opportunity to warn peter of his own personal denial look at verse 30 and jesus said to him truly i say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice you yourself will deny me 3 times now If we look at the other gospel accounts, we can conclude that this is actually the second time that Jesus has predicted Peter's denial. Luke 22, 34 and John 13, 38 give a prediction of Peter's denial, but it's while the men are still in the upper room. This second prediction in Mark is far more forceful Than the others. Jesus literally tells Peter, Truly, I say to you that you today, this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. When Jesus warned of the disciples' defection, it was directed at the whole group. But here, Jesus uses the singular you three times making it obvious that he's speaking directly to Peter and him alone. Peter, who had singled himself out as the the one who would remain faithful, is now singled out by Jesus as the one who would fall the farthest. Not only would he desert his Lord, but he would deny him three times. And that's no momentary lapse or succumbing to pressure. This is a complete and utter disassociation. But if Peter couldn't handle the idea of deserting Jesus, how is he going to handle being told that in a few hours he will utterly deny him? Verse 31 tells us, but Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Peter really raises the octave of his rejection here. He he kept on saying over and over with great emphasis just how ridiculous and far-fetched Jesus' prediction was. Peter tells Jesus, there's no way at all ever that I will deny you. And obviously as the spokesman, Peter, he gets a bad rap for always putting his foot in his mouth. But Mark lets us know that all the other disciples were saying the same thing. And they didn't just agree with Peter. They kept on saying the same thing. And these men had noble aspirations to be sure, but they overestimated their strength and they underestimated the prediction of Jesus. But with that, the discussion is over. Jesus never responds. The disciples stop their their selfish defense and these 12 men now enter the garden of Gethsemane. It's amazing. I mean, Jesus, who's already shown perfect knowledge of every event that's coming, knows that he will soon be utterly abandoned by those closest to him. And yet he still wants them to remain with him. He still cares for these men. And despite their coming failure, he longs to be with them. And this is really what paves the way for the second action of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial. The second action of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial is that he pours out his heart to his disciples. As Jesus faces his greatest trial, he pours out his heart to his disciples. Mark tells us in verse 32, that they came to a place named Gethsemane. And Jesus and his disciples enter the garden, likely close to, or just after midnight. And it's here that Jesus tells eight of the men to remain. Look at the second part of verse 32. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. to the disciples, this would have been a normal occurrence. I mean, Jesus's life could be defined as a life of prayer, right? He he would rise before the sun to, to talk with his father. He prayed all night before choosing the 12. He was transfigured while he was praying. And here, in this moment of his greatest trial, it would be no different. So the eight men sit down near the gate of the garden and and then Jesus calls his inner circle. Look at verse 33. And Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. You know, up to this point, we've seen Jesus in complete control. If you look back through his life, there's never a moment when Jesus is taken by surprise. But something, there's something different about this moment. We read that Jesus began to be very distressed. And this word distressed, it can mean amazed or astonished. Jesus begins to be amazed. Something has shocked the eternal Son of God and it staggers him. So much so that Mark tells us that Jesus was troubled. He was under extreme anxiety or distress. He was horrified. What was it that horrified the eternal Son of God? Was it the thought of death? Or the disappointment of betrayal? Or the realization that he will soon be alone and abandoned? Well, Mark doesn't tell us yet. But this horrific shock, whatever it was, overwhelms Jesus. Look at his words to Peter, James, and John in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, my soul is is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Or keep watch, excuse me. So we now have three different words to describe the anguish that has engulfed Jesus. He is distressed, he's troubled, and now here, he's deeply grieved. The The depth and severity of the grief is so extreme that he tells his disciples that his sorrow is killing him. And in his extreme grief, Jesus wants his disciples to keep watch. Verse 34 ends with Jesus telling his disciples, remain here and keep watch. And Matthew's gospel adds, keep watch with me. Jesus wants them to share in his sorrow. And these men who claimed allegiance to their master now have the opportunity to put their money where their mouth is. And guys, we should take comfort in what Jesus does here. When we're facing our own battles with sorrow, it is right and good for us to find companions and friends that we can pour our hearts out to. And I know that for me personally, I, I struggle with this. There's times where you know, I, I, I might be embarrassed about my struggle or I, I wanna seem better than I am. But Jesus was the perfect and holy son of God. And as he battled against sorrow, he isn't concerned whether his disciples will think of him as less of a Messiah. But I also struggle with battling alone because I don't wanna be a burden to anyone. When you let someone in on your pain, they carry at least a part of it for you. And I don't wanna put any undue pressure on anyone. So I keep my sorrow to myself. But guys, if Jesus cried out to his disciples for help, what do you think we should be doing? We need to find those that we can confide in, cry to, pray with, and allow to comfort us in our times of sorrow. Well, with the men close by to provide some sort of companionship, sympathy, and solace, Jesus must go a short distance from these men and do the most natural thing for him, in this moment, which leads to the third action of Jesus. The third action of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial is that he pleads with his heavenly father. As Jesus faces his greatest trial, he pleads with his heavenly father. You know, history is replete with stories of men and women who have, have, faced, have stood face to face with death without an ounce of fear. Take Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. He was burned at the stake for refusing to recant. And he, prom- he famously responded to the threat of being burned by saying this, quote, the fire you light lasts only for a moment. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will." End quote. Why is it that Jesus doesn't faith face death this way? Why is it that Jesus seems to be recoiling at the thought of death, while those who have died after him have stood firm? Well, the logical answer is that Jesus faced something that Polycarp or any other follower did not face. Jesus faced something beyond physical torment and death. And it's here that Jesus begins to get a foretaste of what is coming. In verses 35 and 36, Show us exactly what's coming. Let's look at those verses. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And outside the cross, this is the apex of Christ's suffering. This trial far outweighs the temptations in the wilderness, Peter's attempt to redirect him from the cross or any other event in his life. If Jesus gives in to this temptation, if he walks away and avoids the cross and everything that it stands for, he deserts God's redemptive plan His mission would be an utter failure. The gospel would be a lie. Satan would claim victory and heaven would be empty. This is the trial that drives Jesus to plead with his heavenly father. Well, Mark tells us that he went a little beyond the three disciples. And Luke adds that it was about a stone's throw away it would have been within earshot of the disciples and likely they would have been able to see him. But after leaving the three, verse 35 tells us that Jesus fell to the ground, But Jesus literally threw himself down on the ground. Now, you've probably seen pictures or paintings of this moment in the garden. You know, Jesus is kneeling on a rock. His hands are gently folded, the halo of light around his head. It's a pretty serene scene. Guys, this was not the case. The text tells us that Jesus kept falling and kept praying. The anguish of his soul would drive him to the ground, and then he would rise and throw himself down again. And I found myself wondering, what was it that Jesus prayed? As he continued to rise and fall with such agony and urgency, what was he saying? You can write down this reference. Hebrews 5.7. Hebrews 5.7. The writer of Hebrews likely, with this night in mind, says this, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the only one able to save him from death. Whatever it was that Jesus prayed, he did it with loud crying and tears. Now, Mark does give us a glimpse of some of what Jesus prayed. Look again at Mark 14, verse 35. It says, Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. What hour? The hour of his death? Well, that's part of it. The hour is connected with his death, but it's also the moment when the sin of the world would be laid upon his shoulders. The moment when the sinless son of God would be made sin for his sheep. And the horror of the thought drives Jesus to cry out to his father that if it's possible to redeem the world without passing through this hour, then let it happen. And we hear this cry from the lips of Jesus. In verse 36, Jesus was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And Abba is an Aramaic word that means something like Papa or Daddy. And this is the only account in the Gospels where this word is used. In the face of such extreme sorrow, Jesus cries out to his dad. I mean, you can hear the inflection in his voice, can't you? Is this any different than what we've done or what our kids do? When your child is in extreme pain or anguish, they cry out, Daddy! Daddy! You don't need to be around to see what happened, right? Their cry tells you everything you need to know. And what's Jesus's cry? Look at verse 36. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In scripture, the cup is seen as the dish that carries the the wrath of the almighty God. Psalm 75.8 says the cup holds the foaming, well-mixed wine of wrath that will be poured out. And in Ezekiel twenty-three twenty-three, we read that you will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation and tear your breasts. Listen to how Timothy Keller describes this moment. Quote, Whenever Jesus turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. What happened visibly at his baptism and at his transfiguration happened invisibly, inaudibly, every time he prayed. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup end quote. But why, why would the father give Jesus this foretaste of what's coming before the cross? Wouldn't it be better to wait until Jesus is detained? What if the horror and grief was so great, the taste of wrath so strong that Jesus left? I mean, he was alone. He was outside the city in the dark of night. He could have walked away and no one would have known. You see, the father set the cup before Jesus. He opened the furnace, as it were, so that Jesus would see the contents. He would feel the heat. And he would voluntarily take the cup, knowing fully what it was. But you might be asking, didn't Jesus know he was going to die and suffer wrath? Yes. He already has said so. And we've already seen that he has perfect knowledge of everything that's happening. But we're not talking about information. It's one thing to know, and it's another thing to experience. I can be told that the pan is hot, but when I walk away with a burn on my hand, I've experienced the heat. Jesus has never experienced any part of God's wrath or the burden of sin. For the first time in all eternity, the eternal Son of God would experience alienation from his Father and the overwhelming weight of sin as he is crushed as a guilt offering for sinners." But despite the foretaste of what was to come, Jesus concludes his first round by praying that his will would be aligned with the Father's. Jesus rises from the ground, his face sweaty and dirty, his body weary from the agony and struggle. Where do his thoughts go? Straight to his disciples. Despite what Jesus has begun to experience, he is concerned about the three men who are keeping watch. Which leads to the fourth action of Jesus as he continues to face his greatest trial. The fourth action of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial is that he patiently exhorts his disciples. Jesus patiently exhorts his disciples. Observe verses 37 and 38. And Jesus came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When Jesus comes to the disciples, and any comfort he might have received from them is erased as he finds them sleeping. These men who had made such bold claims were unable to remain watchful. And Jesus rouses these men awake with a stabbing rebuke. He singles out Peter, not only because he was the leader, but because Peter had singled himself out as the one who would go with Jesus to death. And don't miss what Jesus says here. He calls him Simon for the first time since chapter three. Now, whenever I heard my mom call me Christopher Allen, (laughs) I knew I was in trouble. And in a sense, this is what Jesus is doing. Peter was acting like his old self. And so Jesus calls him by his old, his old name. But the rebuke gets even more pointed. Jesus asks Peter a question. He says, could you not keep watch for one hour? And when Jesus says, could you not, he uses a word that refers to inner strength or ability rather than the more common word for able. And it's meant to remind Peter of his claims only an hour before when he blundered on boasting about his ability to go with Jesus to death now before we're too hard on Peter or the others we have to remember it's it's been a full day and by this point it's well after midnight these guys are tired and Luke also tells us that they were asleep because of sorrow they had obviously seen something different about Jesus and the warnings that he spoke didn't fall on totally deaf ears. And yet, this was the Lord's most critical hour and they should have been awake. But Jesus didn't come to shame them. Even in the midst of his agony, Jesus is concerned about his disciples' He knows what's coming and what they will do. So he encourages them to keep watching and praying. Jesus directs the command to all three with the expectation that they would continue to remain watchful in prayer. Why should they be in a state of watchful prayer? So that they might not enter into temptation. Watchful prayer was to be how the disciples would avoid entering temptation. Now, back in verse 34, Jesus asked the disciples to keep watch with him as a source of comfort for Jesus. But now, Jesus tells them to keep watch for the sake of their own safety. It's unbelievable. When you think that Jesus Has received a foretaste of the cup. He's stared into the wrath of God that is waiting for him at the cross. And still, he comes to these three men and exhorts and encourages them for their own good. And at the end of verse 38, Jesus tells them why it's so critical that they keep on watching and praying. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. (laughs) Following Jesus is not a default response for anyone. Indeed, our our new nature, our internal spirit, it desires joyfully to follow Christ, but our outward flesh is weak. And how often have, have we experienced this? There have been more times than I care to count where I go to deal with an issue and I fail to pray and remain watchful. And what happens? I certainly don't model the love and patience of Christ. Rather than staying alert, I let my guard down and I hurt those that mean the most to me. Guys, we don't stand a chance unless we keep on watching and praying. Well, having exhorted his disciples, Jesus turns again in agony toward his father. Mark tells us in verse 39 that again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. The cup is still held out before Jesus. The agony in this trial continues to grow even as he continues to plead with his father. And it may be at this point when Luke tells us that an angel was sent to strengthen him. Jesus' grief was so strong. He was so near the point of death that an angel was dispatched to provide comfort and strength to Jesus. And Luke also tells us that at some point during this trial, Jesus' sweat becomes like drops of blood that were falling to the ground. Now, if just a whiff of the divine wrath and weight of sin was enough to drive Jesus to this point, what must the full cup being emptied have been like? But I want you to, to think about something. Was it wrong for Jesus to feel this way? Was it wrong for him to ask that the hour and the cup be taken away? Doesn't this show that he's at odds with the Father's will? Does he have his own agenda? No. Ultimately, Jesus wants nothing but the will of the Father to be done. And Jesus' actions and his emotions should be encouraging for us. All of us have and will face sorrow. at some point and it's not wrong to have feelings of grief or distress. It's not necessarily a sign of sin and failure. The sinless son of God who perfectly obeyed the will of the father had these same feelings. And you see often our suffering is a refining process. And the true battle is not to set aside those feelings or suppress them, but to run to our Abba and cast our sorrows on him because he cares for us. We all long to be more like Jesus, yes? And yet we reach a point when we are not able to receive what we desire. And God must mold us so that we are able to receive what he gives And often, this happens through suffering. There are no wasted moments with God. He's always doing something good, even in our trials. But Jesus breaks from a a second round of prayer, and again, his men are on his mind. Verse 40 tells us, and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Again, Jesus comes to check on the disciples and again he finds them sleeping. And Mark tells us that it was because their eyes were very heavy. Their eyes were weighed down. And I feel for these guys, it's after midnight. They had a good meal. They hiked over half a mile to get to the garden. And to top it off, they're sitting there on the cool ground. And yet, this is no excuse. And they know it. You can see it from their response. At the end of verse 40, Mark tells us this. They did not know what to answer him. And I wonder, did did Jesus repeat his rebuke and exhortation from earlier? I mean, imagine what Jesus must have looked like when he came to them the second time. His sweat had turned to blood. He would have been covered in dirt from falling and rising. He'd have been staggering as he stood before the disciples. Would he have needed to say anything? Mark doesn't record it, but Jesus goes away a third time to pray. And verse 41 picks up when Jesus returns from this third round of prayer. Look at verse 41. And Jesus came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? After a third round of prayer, Jesus returns to his disciples who were still asleep they've proven their inability to stand strong. And even though present, these men have already begun to abandon Jesus. In his most critical hour, they were absent. But Jesus rouses them awake and asks them an obvious rhetorical question. Are you still sleeping and resting? The strength these men boasted had been vanquished by drowsiness and heavy eyes. And yet, there's something different about Jesus when he stands before them the third time. There's a different look in his eye. He faced his greatest trial and now he emerges from the battle, body covered in bloody sweat and dirt with a new resolve, which leads to the fifth and final action of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial. The fifth and final action of Jesus as he faces his greatest trial is that he submits to the will of his heavenly father. As Jesus faces his greatest trial, he submits to the will of his heavenly father. As Jesus returns from three rounds of prayer, something amazing happens. Look at the end of verse 41 and through verse 42. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, If I were to ask you what the greatest statement of Christ was, what would you say? I suppose many of you might go to John 19.30 where from the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And I agree, the consummation of the saving work of Christ is an amazing statement but what Jesus says here at the end of verse 41, it may be the most wonderful words ever spoken. Let me explain. Jesus had stared into the cup. The father opened the furnace of wrath that was to be his. It was was as if there was a proposition before Jesus. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards describes this moment. Quote, Here is the cup that you are to drink unless you will give up your undertaking for sinners and even leave them to perish as they deserve. Will you take this cup and drink it for them or not? There is the furnace into which you are to be cast if they are to be saved. Either they must perish or you must endure this for them. There you see how terrible the heat of the furnace is. You see what pain and anguish you must endure on the morrow. Unless you give up the cause of sinners, what will you do? Is your love such that you will go on? Will you cast yourself into this dreadful furnace of wrath? End quote. And Jesus gives his answer in verse 41. Now your text It probably says, it is enough. And this is a a single word in the Greek, and it's it's tricky to translate. Some commentators see it connected to the sleep. In other words, the sleep is enough. While others make the argument that it cannot be, you cannot determine what it means. R.T. France says this, quote, in the end, all interpretations of this obscure interjection our guesses, end quote. And other commentators see this word connected to the trial that Jesus has faced. You could say it is settled. Now, we can't be dogmatic about this, but if the word can be translated, it is settled, what we see is a triumphant Jesus ready to fulfill his earthly ministry as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He tells his disciples with a victorious cry, it is settled. I have won the fight and in my hand, I hold the spoils of my victory. And with courage greater than any hero, Of any story, he now stands ready. Despite the sorrow, Jesus has settled it in his mind and his heart, and he's ready to do the will of the Father and drink the cup on behalf of sinners like you and me. He doesn't run or hide, instead, he wakes his disciples and urges them forward with the words, it is settled. That's an amazing statement. Well, the hour that has so long been delayed has finally arrived. Look at verse 42, Jesus says, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And at this point, it's entirely possible that Jesus can see the the 600 or so men that were headed up the hill with lanterns and, and torches. And he tells the three who were still on the ground to get up. They rejoined the other eight men who were waiting by the gate. And together, they walked out to meet the one who would betray him. Jesus had settled the matter, and he moved forward fully trusting the father, ready to submit to his will. And you might be saying, that's great, Chris, but how is this helpful? Jesus is the perfect God-man. Of course, he can fight against sorrow, but what about me? And I think What Jesus helps us see is that when sorrow comes, the first shock waves of that bomb are not sin. But that doesn't mean that we do nothing. Jesus shows us how determined we must be to fight against sorrow. The real danger comes from yielding to the sorrow and doing nothing. And Jesus shows us the primary weapon of our fight is trust. Jesus fought against sorrow. And he endured the cross because he had a joy that was set before him. And he trusted his Father. And now he's seated at his right hand. This is our example. It's not painless, it's not passive. And it's not easy. Sorrow can seem like a dark cave with no way out. It, it holds our thoughts captive and it threatens to kill us. And guys, the solution is to preach to ourselves. When these thoughts come, and they will, we must finish the thought the right way. We must say, but I trust you, Lord. I know that your plans are good. And if we have to do this 20 times a day, then so be it. Even when the darkness overwhelms us and the light around us becomes darkness, we know that darkness and light are the same to God. And as we keep trusting our good Father, the caves of sorrow will one day, one day become tunnels that lead to fields of joy. Well, Mark gives us an amazing glimpse into the soul of the man of sorrows. I mean, watching the events unfold in Gethsemane, we've seen five actions of Jesus as he faced his greatest trial. He warned his disciples that they would desert and deny him. He poured out his heart to his disciples. He pleaded with his heavenly father and he patiently exhorted his disciples. And finally, he submits to the will of his heavenly father. But what's the point of this? Why does it matter that Jesus faced this trial? And I think there's a couple things worth considering as we close. The first thing worth considering, and perhaps most, the most important thing, is that Jesus' sorrow and submission in the garden is what drove him to the cross and made it possible for you to be saved. Jesus wrestled against the terror of what was before him and he voluntarily chose to take the cup because you can't. Christ rose from the ground. He was weary and bloodied and he marched to the cross despite the heat of the furnace that had been opened before him so that you don't have to endure the eternal heat of hell separated from God. On the cross, the cup has been emptied and there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's not to love about a savior like that? And if you haven't embraced Christ, why would you wait? Why would would you not run to the savior who took the cup Why would you rather hold the cup for yourself? Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Cry out to him to take the cup of God's wrath from you. Give it to the only one who can drink it. And the last thought, well, there's probably more, but the last thought we have time for anyway, worth considering from this passage is that we have a partner in our sorrow. You know, all of us without exception will face sorrow. And many of you are in the midst of sorrow right now. In November of 2010, my wife and I were handed a cup of sorrow. We were pregnant with our We were pregnant with our third child. And Kara felt that something was wrong. And so we headed to the doctor's office to have it checked out. And we dealt with challenging pregnancies with both of our other children. So this wasn't our first rodeo. (laughs) But by the time the third or fourth doctor came in, we knew that something was wrong. They were unable to find a heartbeat. And at 21 weeks old, Levi Kidder was taken to be with his heavenly father. And in the aftermath of this tragedy, we received love and care from so many of you. And the Lord certainly provided comfort through Cornerstone. And yet it's always been difficult for us. There's, There's nothing quite like losing a child. It's unnatural. And it's been 12 years, but there's always a hole. A a, a part of your deepest heart is gone. And what do you say to someone who suffers the loss of a child, especially a 27-year-old couple in the first seven years of their marriage? But that day... Kara and I entered involuntarily into the ever-expanding society of sufferers. But there was comfort, and it came from our sympathetic high priest who suffered so that he is able to provide comfort to those who suffer. And we saw that the cup that Christ drank contained the wrath of God, but There was more to that cup than just God's wrath. Listen to this passage from Isaiah 53, verse 4 says this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. When Christ voluntarily took the cup, he took more than God's wrath. He took a cup that was filled with every grief and every sorrow that you will ever face. He drank a cup that was filled with every miscarriage, every cancer diagnosis, every disease, every sorrow, and every grief that every one of his sheep will ever face." There's something about sorrow and suffering that requires you to experience it, to get it. And Jesus truly gets it. I love the way Charles Gabriel's hymn, I Stand Amazed, captures the thought of this, He says this. For me, it was in the garden he prayed. Not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. In pity, angels beheld him and came from the world of light to strengthen him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden of to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray. How marvelous, how wonderful. Lord, what can we say Jesus took the cup that was filled with wrath meant for us and he took it voluntarily knowing full well what it meant. But Lord, he did it fully trusting that you are good. Lord, and we thank you that he rose and he's exalted and he's at your right hand. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be full of this same trust. I pray for those here that are going through times of sorrow and suffering right now, that you would fill them with this, Lord, that you are good. You don't waste any moments or strengthen their faith. Give us all the trust to believe that you know what you're doing. And in the end, we will be with Jesus exalted forever. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.